always been throughout church history, ever since the earliest of the apostles, the birth of the church, all the way throughout church history, that the Lord's day would indeed be that, be the Lord's day. And I want to encourage you with that, that it's not simply the Lord's morning. And mentioning before about refine, I just want to encourage you to come along and book in the Lord's Day by gathering around the Word of God with the Lord's people. There's something very special about bookending the Lord's Day in that way. We've done that in our times uh, in America and in Australia and done it here before and it's very special. And so I want to encourage you with that. Take note of those dates. Well, this morning we turn attentions back to the gospel of Mark. We find ourselves back in Mark after a little time, after a couple of Sundays, looking at Daniel 9 in the Old Testament and the key, the prophetic key to understanding the end times there in verses 24 to 27 of Daniel 9. And now we dive right back into Mark. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we're working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, and we arrived in Mark chapter 13, which is the Olivet Discourse, which is where Jesus talks about the end times. And so we took a little excursion into Daniel 9, and we're back now. We've looked at the first 13 verses of Mark 13, and it was there that we saw in those first 13 verses of Mark 13, Jesus speak words to the disciples that are words for the nation of Israel and all who will be on earth during the time of the tribulation, of the seven-year tribulation. And I want to, by way of reminder, as we pick up in Mark 13 again, I want to remind you that this all began, the topic of eschatology began to first surface as a result of one of the questions that the disciples asked Jesus on the way out of the temple. And you see that in verse 1. Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings as they were leaving the temple. And they left the temple after Jesus had been systematically attacked, you remember, by the Sanhedrin in three waves of confrontation, interrogation. And this disciple asked how wonderful the buildings are. And then Jesus prophesies that the temple will be destroyed and not one stone will be left upon another. And we know, as a result of what we looked at, that that happened and was fulfilled in AD 70, so 30 years or so after Jesus said it. And immediately after declaring that about the temple, Jesus then takes the disciples, the twelve, up on top the Mount of Olives. And that's where he begins what is known as the Olivet Discourse. And we saw in that first message from Mark chapter 13 that, as I said, Jesus' words to the twelve are not to the church age, but to Israel in the coming future tribulation. And that those words from Jesus tell us that the tribulation has as its specific aim, as we see in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 30 and the very beginning of Daniel chapter 9, that there have been this tribute that this tribulation has been decreed specifically to judge Israel and to cause the Jews to finally obey God, to finally listen to God and no longer be in covenant disobedience to their God, but now believe in 
the Messiah, instead of rejecting him, they will now receive him. And that was part one of things to come. This morning is things to come part two. And we find ourselves in verse 14 of Mark chapter 13. And so follow along with me in your Bibles and I'll read through to verse 23. That'll be our focus this morning. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. Jesus says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Let's pray. Father, we come before you with eager hearts and minds, eager to learn more. Father, eager to grow in grace and knowledge and eager to sit under the authority of your word and eager to learn what you have for us in this holy hour. So give us attentive hearts and minds, we pray. Would the Holy Spirit move among us? Would He do a mighty work among us? Would He be our truth teacher? Would, be, would He be our sanctifier? And anyone here who does not yet know the Lord, would He bring them and draw them to saving faith? This morning we pray in all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I began our time in looking at end times in Mark chapter 13 by a story. And it was the story of Lisa and I and Kaya in San Diego, in our time when we lived in America, walking along the shores of San Diego there. And we were away for a weekend. It was 2011. And we came across a man in our wanderings who was following the teachings of Harold Camping and the ministry by Harold Camping, who was an author, a radio broadcaster, and an evangelist, well-known. And this man that we bumped into in San Diego, he was serving in Camping's Ministry, And he said to me that the end of the world was going to take place on May 21, 2011. Well, May 22nd obviously rolled around. Nothing had happened. And I can remember what did happen because it was definitely the talk of the times because they'd spent $5 million on uh, uh, banners and large signs and the like, billboards. And we got back to... Grace Community Church and the Master's Seminary and everyone's talking about it and wondering why on earth people come to those conclusions that they do. And what then happened very quickly after that was that the teaching ministry of Harold Camping released a statement by Harold himself saying that Harold had gotten it wrong and that he failed to carry the decimal across and that there was a new date now and it was 100 days from May 21 and that new date was October 21, 2000. And 11. And you know, October 22 obviously rolled around, and again, 
nothing happened. And aside from many people wanting money back from the money that they donated to Harold Camping, and the many people then distancing themselves from the ministry of Harold Camping, and Times Magazine listing it as the top, top 10 most failed predictions of all time, Aside from that happening, what also happens when Harold did that and other people do that is that it makes, A, Christians look silly, and B, it only adds fuel to the fire of doubt among the world, right? That the world is not going to end. In fact, when you survey the common ideologies of people today, Most think that the world will become and can be a better place and all they want to do is make sure that they live their life in a way that they leave the world better than what it was, that we can end global warming, that we can have peace on earth, that things will simply continue on as they are and always have been and that's the world's basic assumption. The world's not going to end and they literally mock our belief that the end will come and that kind of mocking has been around for a long time. I mean, guys like Harold Camping and other people who declare the end only add to that kind of mockery but these last days will be characterized by that mockery of belief in the end times in fact peter wrote about it in second peter chapter 3 he says this knowing that first of all that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own last saying what do they say where is the promise of his coming For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Peter says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let, Peter says, this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, it's good to be aware of what God says about the end times. It's good to ask questions about the end times. Asking questions was exactly what Peter, James, and John, and Andrew did. You remember, look at verse 4. They say, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus then unfolds for them what things will look like. And we saw that in the first 13 verses. And he speaks specifically in verses 5 to 13 concerning the first half of the tribulation. We saw in Daniel 9 that the Antichrist will come and he'll make a covenant for one week, right? Seven-year period will be the tribulation. The church will be raptured, spared from such a time of horror and judgment. As a result of all that and all that's going on, chaos will certainly ensue. And immediately, 
we saw from Daniel 9 that the seven-year tribulation will then be kicked off with a peace treaty. He'll sign a covenant. There'll be a covenant between the Antichrist and Israel. We saw that last week in Daniel 9. And that is why, look at verse 5, that is why Jesus says at the very beginning of the tribulation, see to it that no one misleads you. Then wars will start. Nation will rise up against nation. Israel will be still be happy because they'll be at peace because they have this person who's covenanted to protect them. The nations will begin to rise up. Kingdom against kingdom. Verse 7 and 8, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. These things must take place. But Jesus says, but that is not yet the end. You're only in the first half of the tribulation here. He says, then that this is uh, verse 8, for nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Then there'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll also be famines. Then these things These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. When a woman is pregnant, she knows she's going into labor when the contractions commence. And then the frequency of those contractions increases the closer she is to the end, right? To giving birth. Jesus is saying the commencement of those things, those uh, wars, famines, and the like, people saying, I am he, that's just the start. This will be horrible. Wars, earthquakes, brother betraying brother to death. Why does Jesus say there by way of reminder in verse 12 that brother will betray brother to death and in verse 11 they'll arrest you and hand you over. Why? Because as the nation of Israel, the people of Israel who reject the Messiah, as they begin to receive the Messiah, one brother will, the other brother will say, drag him to the synagogue. Arrest him. That's the kind of thing that's going on here. To Israel. That'll go on for... Three and a half years. And then there'll be something very significant. A significant shift in the events take place during this seven year tribulation. And that leads us to our passage this morning. For it is where we find ourselves right at the middle of the tribulation. We know that from our time that we spent in Daniel 9. That the Antichrist makes peace with Israel. And then in the middle of the seven years... He breaks the peace treaty he signed with them. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. He puts a stop to the worship in the temple that had no doubt been rebuilt and refabrished in that first half of the time of peace. And then he enters the most holy place and says, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, we saw last week, he walks in and says, I am God. That's the abomination of desolation. And that leads us to our first point. The first heading I want to give you this morning is number one, the sign. What is the sign going on here that triggers the transition from the first half of the tribulation to the great tribulation? Here's the sign in the very beginning of verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, the ESV renders it where standing where he should not be. That is because the word standing and it is in the masculine. And so it's really talking about him, a person. Jesus says then, let the reader understand. I want you to know that Jesus said that. That's not an editorial insertion by Mark or by Matthew. Jesus actually said that. 
In fact, with Andrew this week, I checked in a red letter Bible and it's red letters. Let the reader understand. Fancy that. Jesus said those words and we'll learn more about that. He says that because why? There'll be copies of the Bible left all over the world when the church has been raptured out of this world. And he says, let the reader understand, the reader of Scripture, of Daniel 9, of Mark 13, of Matthew 24, understand. Understand what? The abomination of desolation. Now, the phrase abomination of desolation appears three times in the book of Daniel. First, as we looked at it, it appears in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, which tells us when the tribulation will occur. And the turning point of the tribulation, the middle of the week, when it will be broken. The covenant, that is, that he makes with Israel. Second, the phrase abomination of desolation appears in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. And that tells us what the abomination of desolation actually looks like. That verse says, forces from him will arise. Him, speaking of the prince of the Antichrist, forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. There it is. Meaning that as he breaks the peace treaty between he and Israel and puts a stop to worship in the temple, his forces then arise from among the nations and begin to attack Jerusalem and the people of Israel. And then the third time this phrase, the abomination of desolation, appears in Daniel is in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, which says, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, which is what the Antichrist does in the middle of the week, and the abomination of desolation is set up when he goes in and says, I am God. So when those two things happen until the end, it says there will be 1,290 days. Amazing. Because when you add up 1,290 days, it equals three and a half biblical years. Amazing. So what that is saying is that from the time that the treaty is broken and the time that then, then what happens at the same time the treaty is broken, the Antichrist takes his seat, says, I am God. From that time through to the end of the age is 1,290 days, which equals perfectly the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So in Daniel, we are given... When the tribulation begins, what the Antichrist does in the middle of the tribulation, and also how long it is till the end of the age. It's remarkable. That's amazing. That's why Jesus says, let the reader understand. Jesus said, let the reader understand. So, the sign of the significant shift in the middle of the tribulation That's the sign. From that moment on, from that moment on, there are literally, pun intended, only three and a half years left until the end of the age. We know it's not the end. But we know it's the end of that tribulation time. So first the sign. And next we see, I want you to see next, the scenario. In verses 14b through to 19. It's here that we see the scenario. In verses 14 to 19. That we get to see what actually takes place. In this great latter half of the tribulation. 
here still, like he was in verses 5 through 13 of Mark chapter 13, Jesus is speaking not to the church, but to Israel and to all who were here on this time. And all who will be born into such a time as this. A time where the one who made peace with Israel then turns against Israel. And no doubt the entire world is watching on because you've got to remember that all the nations will be almost in an accelerated version of what they are now. They'll all be against Israel. And then one from among those nations makes peace with Israel and Israel is pleased with him to do so. It's a fascinating time. The whole world is literally watching on. And when that one who made peace with Israel then goes into the most holy place and says, all is okay, I am God. Something very significant is going to take place and we must survey this scenario. And it's the revelation that we must go. As that unfolds with great detail, what happens in the second half of this great tribulation. So a jet tour we must do. And this gets quite graphic and quite heavy. It was Dr. MacArthur first, who I believe, who pulled this all together. And this kind of jet tour through Revelation. Other men have adapted it and I have as well somewhat. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. I was pleased to see that the book in the bulletin this morning is a jet tour through Revelation by John. And so head over to the bookstore and grab that great little book. It'll clear up Revelation for you. All the pieces that I leave foggy. But in Revelation chapter 6, here are immediately the seven seals. This is the first half of the tribulation. Judgment is poured out by God upon unbelieving Israel specifically. And all the nations generally. The first four seals you see there are all rolled out. Begins with false peace. Then wars. Then famine. And then persecutions. This is what Jesus spoke about in in verses 5 through 13 of Mark chapter 13. When he said there would be wars and rumors of wars. Family members dragging other family members before law courts. Betraying them to death. That's what happens there in the first seals. Then once we reach the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist turns against Israel and anyone who will not waver in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is killed. Each of them. Look at verse 11 of Revelation 6. There was given each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. They're given a white robe, martyrs from the tribulation. They're told to rest a little while, while the rest are martyred too. Then there's going to be, look at verse 12 of Revelation chapter 6. There's going to be a giant earthquake. The sun then goes black. The moon goes red and stars begin to fall from the sky. Then people, whether kings or rulers or regular people, look at verse 15. They'll 
everyone will just begin to hide in caves. And what will they say? They'll say in verse 16 and 17, the great wrath has come. Then look ahead to chapter 8 and verse 6 and 7. This is horrific. The seven angels who were the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound and the first sound and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth. And look at this. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the grass, green grass was burned up. So you'll have a third of the world's vegetation devastated by fire, burned up, gone. A third of all the earth's produce, vegetables and all the stuff we eat, gone, burned up. Then look in verses 8 and 9. You'll have a third of all the ocean and all its produce inside the ocean is killed in an instant. Then the second angel sounded something like a great mountain burning, like a huge burning asteroid was thrown into the sea. And it says a third of the sea became blood and a third of the creatures which were in the sea had life died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. So a third of everything in the ocean dies. All the fish we eat, everything dies. This giant asteroid thing on fire lands in the ocean. No doubt huge tsunamis will be as a result too, all over the world. Then look at verse 10 and 11. A third of all the earth's water source will be poisoned. Verse 10 and 11. Wormwood. The star falls named Wormwood. Poisons. A third of all the earth's water. A third of the sun. Look what happens next. This is scary. Verse 12. A third of the sun and the moon basically shut down. A third of the stars gone. Just imagine what happens when you have only a third of the sun and a third of the moon. You have literally no seasons and no tides. There's no seasons, no tides. That then becomes an incredibly disastrous scenario. Surely, utter pandemonium. The world then grinds to a seasonal halt, a tidal halt. And then look over at Revelation 9. It gets worse. Revelation 9, look at verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which was before God one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates and the four angels have been prepared for the hour and day and the month and the year were released so they would kill what does it say they would kill a third of mankind just armies of the antichrist released kills and wipes out a third of the population of the world slaughter everywhere in this great tribulation a third of all the people on earth killed then look at verse 15 well, i just read that then uh revelation chapter 11 verse 13 then there's this great earthquake it says there a tenth of the city fell seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake another massive earthquake that kills thousands upon thousands then look at flick ahead to revelation 16 for a moment Those that remain, 
verse 2, that there will be these malignant sores that are poured out upon the people. Verse 2, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Then poison. Look at verse 3. The second angel then pours poison out on the earth, and all of the fresh water on the earth is literally poison. And then look at verse 9. Men were scorched with fierce heat. The earth is then scorched with an intense heat. And look there at the rest of verse 9. Look at what the people will still be doing after all that has taken place. Look at what people will still be doing. They blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give Him glory. It gives great glory when people repent. But even in the midst of all that that happens, puny man still waves his puny fist at God and says, and blasphemes his name and says, I will not repent and give you glory. Such is the depravity, the utter depravity of man. Look at verse 10. Then everything goes dark. Verse 10. And his kingdom became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And look in verse 11. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. The darkness of night all around. All outside. And the darkness inside people too. As they display anger continually towards God and a lack of repentance toward God. And so this really is a time of unsurpassed disaster and destruction upon the earth. That's exactly what Jesus meant in verse 19 of Mark chapter 13. You can turn back with me there. That's exactly what is meant when he says, for those times will be a time of tribulation has not ever occurred, such as never occurred, and he says never will occur. Unbelievable. That's why he says the moment you see the abomination of desolation, which is the Antichrist, the moment you see him take his seat in the temple, then his armies are going to slaughter a third of mankind and all the drinking water on earth is going to be poison. And the sun and the moon, the seasons and the tides are literally going to switch off. Incurable sores will be all over people. Gigantic stars and burning rocks will, are going to fall from the sky. And millions upon millions of people from all over the earth are going to die. And every single creature in the ocean will die. And there will be no produce. There will be no fresh water. And Jesus says, if you're in Judea, flee to the mountain, which is in the south, saying, get up high to the mountains. He says, if you're on the rooftop, 
enjoying your cool evening, which is what they did and do and will do in Israel throughout Jerusalem. He says, when, when you're up on the roof, don't, don't even bother coming down. It's too late. I'm finished. When you hear that that man has signed, who signed the peace treaty with our nation, Israel, when you hear that he now has said he is God, it's too late for you. It's done. Don't go back into your house. As though that's going to help in any way. Or if you're working out in the field, don't even think it's going to go and help to get your jacket, your coat. It's not going to do a thing. Why? Because you need to get out of there fast. That's not going to help anyway. And if there was a possibility of escape, if there was a possibility that a quick exit is going to be helpful, then woe to you who are pregnant. Why? Because you can't move fast. Woe to you who are nursing the babies that you just gave birth to because you can't move fast. Woe to you who can't move fast. The disabled, the elderly, you can't move fast. It's not going to help anyway. Why the need to flee? Because the armies of the Antichrist are going to come. And they are going to kill. And the slowest to leave will die first. It'll be those that are pregnant. And those that are nursing babies. And the like. You know, Hosea prophesied of, of this horrific event in horrific detail. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 16, it says this. Samaria, which is the region of Judea, will be held guilty. For she rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones, the ones that have been nursed, will be dashed into pieces and the pregnant women will be ripped open. Graphic. Jesus then, then says in verse 18, pray. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter. Why? Well, he's simply saying there that anything that slows you down will speed up the time until your life is taken away from you. The people of Israel, understand this, the people of Israel are in the closest proximity to the temple. Where the Antichrist sits saying, I am God. And his armies will be with him. And so they will be sent to kill them, the nation of Israel. In fact, in Zechariah 13 verse 8 it says, That it will come about in all the land of Israel, declares the Lord, that two parts... In it will be cut off and perish. That tells you this. That right as this time kicks off, the second half of the Great Tribulation, when the armies of the Antichrist come, two-thirds of the nation of Israel will be killed. One-third left. Heavy. Graphic. A horrific slaughter of two-thirds of the entire population of of Israel during this time of great tribulation. But then listen very carefully to the very next verse of Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13.9 tells us that two-thirds of Israel will be killed, but then listen very carefully to verse 10. This is Yahweh speaking. 
there'll be a third left. And he says, and I'll bring the third part through fire. Refine them as silver is refined. And test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, Yahweh is my God. One third will escape and find life. They'll find eternal life. As God declares them His people. And so with that theme of God keeping and bringing a third through the fire of the tribulation. And then saving them as they declare salvifically understanding now who God is and the one true Messiah, the anointed one that he sent. With that theme in mind of God keeping his people, I want you to see our third and final heading this morning in verses 20 to 23, the security, the security. We've seen, number one, the sign that indicates the turning point in the tribulation where the Antichrist declares himself God and commits abomination, desolates the people and then ushers in an accelerated, unprecedented time of great tribulation and slaughter. We have surveyed, we've seen the scenario in number two, all that takes place on earth where the judgments of God are poured out upon Israel and the, those that remain. And now we see number three, the security. Verse 20. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. Interesting statement. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. A remarkable statement. This highlights one very significant, one incredibly unmistakable aspect of the end times. And it's this. God before the foundation of the world, has decreed all that shall come to pass. You see, God doesn't simply allow all those things to take place. No, no. He ordained all those things to take place. We're not talking about divine permission as though God somehow allows these things to take place. We're talking about God's eternal decree that before the foundation of the world... He decreed all things that will come to pass. Perfectly. Unchangeably. Because He Himself is unchangeable. And because God is unchanging, so too are His decrees. That which He decrees from before the foundation of the world, all throughout history, to the end and to the eternal state, all that He has decreed is unchanging, unbreakable, because He is unchanging. You see, it's not as though God is looking down upon this time of tribulation thinking, okay, things have now gotten so bad, I better cut it short. That's not what's going on. No. Before the foundation of the world, God sovereignly ordained all that will come to pass. And one of those things that he ordained that will come to pass is the shortening of the tribulation. Why? So as to preserve and to protect his people. Because so deadly and so disastrous 
is that time of great tribulation that if God had not cut short those days, everyone would be dead. But God always has his people. Whom he chose. Whom he elected. According to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, before the foundation of the world. So, in the eternal decree of God, where God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit planned and decreed all that will come to pass. God set a time limit on the length of days of the tribulation. So as that His people, whom He chose, will be saved. Included in that, included in this security are the 144,000 mentioned in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. Which says, let me read it for you. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the foreheads of the servants of our God. And I heard the number of those who were sealed is 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, some people want to say that that 144,000 is just some sort of allegory and symbol and illustration for this kind of large amount of people that we'll call the church. Well, that is simply not so. The very next verse in Revelation chapter 7, verse 5, goes on to explain in detail that the 144,000 is 12,000 from each 12 tribes of the nation of Israel and names them very specifically. No allegory. And did you notice what it says there? about the 144,000, it says that they are sealed. Sealed. When the stars were falling from the sky and the earthquakes were ravaging the land during the tribulation, Revelation chapter 6, verse 17 says, the people cried out, who can withstand this? The wrath has come. Who can withstand all this? Well, the answer is those who are sealed, secured by God, that is, the 144,000, and who will, we're told, will preach the gospel. Angels will even be preaching the gospel from the sky, and the 144,000 will be preaching the gospel. And all those whom God has elected and those that are saved in that time will be preaching the gospel. It'll be they who are sealed. It'll be they who enter the kingdom when Jesus returns physically, most literally, when his feet land again on the Mount of Olives. The very place that he gave the Olivet Discourse is, Daniel tells us, the very place where his feet will land again physically and literally. It'll be those who God has sealed and saved in that time, his elect whom he chose, who will enter into that kingdom. As I said, if God had not shortened those days, everyone would have died. But in His sovereignty, those that are sealed secure will go into the kingdom. So picture it this way. There is a tragic, horrific, like never seen before, death and poisoning and all sorts of things taking place. And God spares a people 
And then as he returns with himself and with the saints, all those that have gone before us, as he returns and establishes his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years, all those that survived that tribulation will enter the kingdom and we'll meet them there. We read of this exact thing in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Speaking of this exact thing, it says this, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. That's the martyrs in Revelation 6, all the people that were killed. And listen to this. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And what does it say? And they came to life and reigned, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Tribulation saints ushered into the kingdom that we come down in the second coming of Christ. You see, God has showcased his sovereign election of people from among the masses throughout redemptive history. From among all the nations of the world, God chose Israel and no one seems to blinker and I have debate or doubt upon that no one wants to argue that in the church age as the gospel went out into the world this age God has chosen a people from among those nations and the good shepherd has chosen his sheep and he lays down his life for them and then in the last days as we just read when things are deadly and disastrous God still has an elect. Sealed securely and ushered into the kingdom. I want you to see, not only are they secured physically, that is, they are those who haven't worshipped the Antichrist. I want you to see they're also going to be sealed and secured spiritually. Look at verse 21. If anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. Why? Don't, why? why? Well, it gives a reason. False Christs and false prophets will arise, and they will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Fascinating. towards the end of this time there will be people who have studied the word of God and they'll know that you know what it's time for a Jesus now it's time for a Messiah now and in the name of wanting to be thought of highly and prestige from the masses they'll say I am he I am Jesus towards the end of the tribulation and Jesus says don't don't believe them and it'll be so amazing what they'll do because what will they do They'll even show signs and wonders. And then a beautiful phrase. The aim of their signs and wonders is to lead astray, but then a beautiful phrase. If possible. If possible, the elect. What does that mean? It means that it's not possible. It's not possible. Sure, people can be deceived and duped and led astray for a time, but not not those whom God has chosen. 
That's the tribulation. That's the first half and the second half of the tribulation. A horrific time of judgment, a time when in the midst of such horror, God's elect will preach the gospel to all and those who are elect will respond. And like every believer throughout every dispensation of time, they will be led safe because they've been sealed securely by God. But that's not the end of the times. That's not the end of the end times. Because what happens next is the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see that, Lord willing, next week and then its impact. But how can we, as we close, how can we apply all this to our lives? Well, I want you to look at verse 23. Jesus says to them, But take heed, behold, I've told you everything in advance. You see, we see here the security of God upon His elect and His promises to keep them, no matter how dire the predicament. For the tribulation saints, it will be like a time that has never been before. For those of us here, before things get really bad, they'll get bad, but before they get really bad, the Lord will snatch up His church. And as Revelation 5.20 tells us, we will be spared from that wrath. But it's one thing to hold fast to the comfort of the security we have from our sovereign God. It's one thing to hold fast to that. Trusting in His sovereignty. But how? But how? How do the people of the tribulation endure that time? And how do we in our life, as we undergo distresses and trials, I mean, Jesus in the Gospel of John made a very general statement. He's saying, in this life, dear believer, you will have trouble. I mean, how is it that what's the means by which you and I endure? Well, it's in those words in verse 23. We have the words of Jesus in advance. Ahead of time. Oh, there's political upheaval? Follow Jesus. Oh, there's financial disaster? Follow Jesus. Oh, there's marital pain and suffering? Follow Jesus. We have the mind of Christ. We have His words now. That's a grace of God. It was... What Jesus said to them, I give you my words in advance, and that's what we have now. We have the words of Jesus in advance. Let the reader understand, behold, I've told you everything in advance. It's been well said that in order to suffer well, you need a theology of suffering. And how you must respond in those times is by Jesus' words. More of Jesus and the Apostle Paul and less of the world and their words. 
There are some of you here who can't hear Jesus' words because you have not yet humbled yourself and given your life over to Him that He might give you ears to hear and eyes to see. But on this day, in this very moment, you can be given eyes to see and ears to hear and have Jesus' words in advance. But there's some words that you can have now. Because Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3, this is eternal life. Now. That you may know Him, the one true God, and Jesus whom He sent. And so if you're here, no matter your age, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter your health status, no matter your anything status, unless you have given your life to Jesus Christ, your status is condemned. But the Bible says that God, out of His great love, sent forth Jesus Christ. That if you believe in Him and hand your life over to Him by acknowledging your great sin against Him and believing in the Son of God that was hung upon a cross who bore your shame and guilt and penalty. That if you put your trust in Him, this very moment, On this very day, forgiveness can be yours. So do that. You'd have to be out of your mind to do that. But understand this. What sits in you is the same heart. At at the moment, if you are outside of Jesus Christ, what sits in you is the same heart that we saw in Revelation that waves its hand at God and blasphemes God and says, I will not repent. Why? Because a heart of flesh is against God. But God in His abundant grace to all those who humble themselves will change that heart from a heart of flesh and give you a new heart. A heart that wants to follow Him. So no more of resisting His will because His will is that you turn away from your sin and believe the gospel. Do that today. And dear church family, take comfort. And to know Jesus' words in advance means we've got to study Jesus' words in advance. Be diligent. Be faithful. Be spirit-filled by living a word-filled life. Jesus' words in your life. May I do that and may you do that to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and say thank you for this time. Lord, we always say thank you because our hearts overflow with gratitude that you are so kind. We see your kindness on display that even in the midst of a tragic time in the tribulation, you shorten the days for your people and that you usher your people into your kingdom and that you prevent your people from being led astray by all these false prophets and false Christ. You're so kind. And Father, we know that it is your kindness that brings about repentance. And so if there are people here who have not yet bowed the knee to you and given their life to you, would they do so? Would you grant them eyes? Would you turn the lights on? Would you regenerate them? Would they put their faith in you? We call them to come and we thank you. 
that when you called us, we came because of your abundant saving grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.